Welcome all. As is probably obvious to everyone here, this is the final episode of our Gardens of the Moon read-along. With this season closing and another looming, we have some announcements to make. So stick around afterwards or use the timestamp in the description to jump straight there. Pardon the interruption. Welcome back to Sci-Fi and Fantasy Read-Along. I'm ATN. I'm Yule. And I'm DM Phil. Hey, guys. Hey. <laughs> hey. I don't, I don't know what to say other than uh, this, is the en- this is the end. Can you believe we got here? I can and I can't. Like, I feel like this has been going on for a really long time. And, like, you know, this is our life now. But this isn't our life now. This is the end. Like, we have come to the final chapter feels weird feels real weird i don't know what to do there's like a gap in my life now yeah yeah my what do you mean a gap in your life um like we a haven't void. Won. we haven't we haven't done this for a while and now we're 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 done after today we're done well there's always tomorrow well, right we're done with this book and it was an achievement. But let's talk about the achievement that we have made and, like, slap ourselves on the back at the end when we've actually finished. Um, but for now, um, how about we get caught up to speed? Because it has, as Philip said, been a couple of weeks since we recorded. And so there are some things that I need to get caught up on. So let's let's get there, yes? In our last episode, Ralik dispatched Crocus to go warn Baruch and possibly assist him. In the gambit to kill Anamanda Rake, a demon, Lord of the Glane, was released onto the streets of Darugistan, and Lorne, free to choose, made her choice and paid for it. So, oh, I don't even want to do this. <laughs> I feel, I feel kind of out of sorts. Yeah, rusty. It's um, like getting back to working out or something after a long layoff. Yeah. Although I haven't yeah. really done anything like working let's out never stop this again <laughs> or start either or <laughs> yeah exactly all right so let's talk about the preamble just super quick because i didn't get anything out of it much other than like a repeat of the rules or kind of the expectations for how an azith operates well i thought there, it did mention something a little interesting it said um that there was demonic hearts locked in each chamber so is this like i thought it was just like for imprisoning only this um um what do you call him the tyrant yeah 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 the tyrant i thought he was the only one there but it seems sounds like it's this massive prison for every ne'er-do-well of significance that uh has plagued the planet well i don't think that there is only this one I think this is one of many, and this is their purpose to the antiquities, the, the what are they called? Anachronisms, the powers of the past that are no longer meant for this world. This is like a repository for them. That's kind of my, that's kind of what I was getting out of it. Oh, okay. Well, it said there's many rooms and it was a house. I kind of envisioned it as being this multi- dimensional prison or something I, I i honestly had a hard time figuring out but i think to me it sounded like this was one entrance but once you go inside there's lots and lots of cells where these these bad people are now are, are, locked. Now are these houses are they um do they connect is that what you're trying to say yeah exactly they're all connected but they exist on different places in the planet mm, yeah okay very good but only certain people can enter right well as we're gonna see those rules are explained later uh-huh. as far as like getting all, I didn't get most of what y'all are talking about out of the preamble. Okay. I, what I got out of it was like that it was written by some guy who has quick Ben's middle name. Yeah. I well, Okay. Fi- yes. Yeah. We did mention that. I pretty much assumed that uh, quick Ben had wrote that. I don't know. I mean, it could be a relative. It could have been him. There's no born date. There's no death date. We have no idea who this person is other or than just happens to have his name. Got it. Yeah, questionable. Questionable fella, this Ben Adafon Delot. Having arrived at Baruch's estate, Crocus is thwarted by a warded front door and so decides to try his luck on the garden entrance. Yeah, that doesn't work out either. Well, it kind of does. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, his luck holds, I would have to say. His luck is holding, even though he doesn't seem to think his luck is holding. 
because uh, when he's preparing to leap that wall, getting that running start that he needs, there's that inhuman scream, and then a dragon crashes into the wall 20 feet away and like destroys the wall. And this is, of course, the dragon that we saw in last chapter that Anamander Rake was diving down upon. That was the Lord Gawain? Is that what it's called? Or Gawain Demon or something like that? <laughs> I'm not real sure if Gawain is the name of the race or the people or if it's his. I'm not real sure. And, I don't know. And Crocus can't move from that spot. Oh, he tries. He says that it, it's temerity. He can't believe his own temerity at trying to dodge past this creature, but he, he goes for it. He makes a run for Brook's door while this creature is veering from a dragon into that 10, 12-foot-high demon lord. The one with the axe that has, like, double-bladed axe or something, right? Yeah, I think we described him pretty thoroughly in the last chapter. Just to be clear, I thought he was kind of, like, frozen in place, and then Animanda Rake pretty much kind of broke him out of that spell and sent him on his way. That is true, but he got frozen when he ran past. I think he crossed about, kind of like de- or, um, dragons in D&D have a fear aura. I think this demon has like a petrification or hold person aura or something. Maybe hypnotism? I don't really know. It seemed like Crocus couldn't take his eyes off of him and like was kind of stuck in place. But he was able to talk and think. He just wasn't able to move. And then the demon lord is speaking and like, Lord, we don't need to do this. And I'm like, Crocus? But of course, he was talking to Animander Rake. Oh, yeah, that was nice. Uh, I I like that. You don't really think he's talking to Crocus, but Crocus (laughs) is answering him. And so it seems like he is. And then it's like, oh, yeah, like you said, oh, Animander Rake's right behind me. (laughs) Oh, you're that guy from the fate. That's what he says. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, don't worry, I'm not going to kill you now. Brood has talked me out of it, at least for the moment. So, Oh, yeah, at least for the moment, right? So run along, he says. And then we get some awesome lore, because there's banter going on between the demon lord and Animander Rake. Well, that's true, but right before that, when he tells Crocus to run away, he said, this will be a close thing. Ooh. And I don't know, like... <laughs> I seriously, I mean, that just made me like, I don't know if it pucker up or something like that, because I was like, wow, this is almost scary that, and, and Rake just faces it with such poise and fearlessness. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of daunting that he literally, this, this, this immortal could die right now. Right. And, um, and remember that this is Lorne's gambit, the releasing of the demon lord was the the expectation upon its release was that Rake would already have been weakened taking out the tyrant. And he was not involved in that. So he's at full strength and he still thinks it's going to be a close call. I had a little bit of fear for this man whom I've come to admire. He was a little nervous. I was a little nerve wracking and scary knowing that he was getting into this scrap. I can tell you that. So the Ghislaine Lord says to Animander Rake that he, that Rake stinks of Tiama. Philip, you're the guy with the spreadsheet. Have we encountered Tiama before? I think that we have, and I think that if at the very least we had we had asked the question, are we talking about Tiamat? Yes, we've encountered this name three times and in three different spellings, and I believe they're all related. Is the answer? We've had Tiam, Tiama. And Tamatha. And who are these people supposed to be? Unknown, but it, it I unknown, but it sounds to me it's 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 described as female, uh-huh. but Mother Dark is also obviously female. So was Ander Anamander Rake the bastard offspring of two women? It's kind of weird. I don't understand it. Well, my question was whether or not Tiama is the name of Mother Dark. And if so, and maybe also in addition to, is Mother Dark a dragon? Like, those were the ideas that were, like, kind of swirling in my mind when I was reading this. Um, Because he said there was more of Tiama in Rake than Tistiandi blood. I don't want to speak for everybody else, but I'm under the impression that Animander Rake is one of Mother Dark's first children. Right. And how can he be the, you know, uh, one of the first children of Mother Dark and a child of Tiama? I don't know. I'm uh, Just questions, no answers. There's no glossary help. None on this one. For the Azath or for Tiama. So 
Yes, in my notes, I have a female part of Anna Amanda Rake's parentage, question mark, and then Mother Dark, question mark. Right. So the Ghislaine Lord fails his diplomacy check to talk Rake into fleeing, and then Rake says, attend, Ghislaine, and they start to fight. And it's it's this beautiful, <laughs> it's this beautiful oh, back and forth tete-a-tete with Anna Amanda Rake explaining the lore of his homeland to the Ghislaine Lord that darkness was corrupted. What is the, what's the actual, what is it? What's revealed by Animander Rake in that battle? To the mother's regret was light granted birth. To her dismay, she saw too late. It's corruption, Ghislaine. You are the unintended victim to punishment long overdue. So each of these small statements is coming between blows as Animanda Rake is just wailing on this demon. And this is after his shoulder has been touched. <laughs> so dark defeats light, plain and simple. This is not this is not the typical, you know, trope of fantasy. This is darkness is overcoming light and Dragnapur drinks again. The cool part here is that I think the Ghislaine had such an incredibly strong spirit that it took a while for the sword to actually drag it in versus like when it fought the hounds which it sounded like it happened almost instantaneously right and here it just it took a lot of effort for it to suck that demon in i wonder how i mean i think you're right i i I noticed it it was a beautifully described moment in the book with the chains growing taut and like slowly dragging him in etc but i wonder how much of that was just uh artistic license to let us really see it in this culminative battle, finally, you know, what the sword does and how it operates. Yeah, you can only go back to this so many times or, you know, you got you to gotta really <laughs> blow your rod at the right time. I agree. I agree. And I think it was really, really well done. I mean, he's been hinting at, I mean, not hinting. I mean, we know, but we because of Perrin, we went in and we saw the, you know, the, the wagon the chained wagon that's like super tall. Yeah. You know, we saw the chains and underneath it. And, you know, because of other people, we know that when Animator Rake uses Dragnipur, you could smell the smoke of chains and oil or whatever it is. This is just another full aspect of that finally being realized, maybe. Do you remember Krupp and Kroll were talking at one point and Kroll asked him, what do you hear? And he's like, I hear chains and the groaning of slaves. And he's like, that is a sword. And he's like, how can that be a sword? <laughs> well, well, we know now how it can be a sword. And that that demon lord is now pulling on that wagon. That's, that's his job now. You're hired. So Rake's shoulder is bloody because during that combat, the demon lord reached out and touched him with his hand. I, I don't know how bad it is, but apparently it's pretty bad because he tells Crocus, now that the combat is over, go, Baruch is in trouble, I cannot help him. And so Crocus like turns on a dime and runs. Inside Baruch's estate, he and Derudan await the imminent arrival of Vorkin. They have just felt the death of Travail, the third member of the Cabal, to die tonight. Oh, fourth. Mammoth, after all. Didn't die by Vorkin's hand, but he did die tonight. So Derudin has made preparations inside of Baruch's place. And it's this circle of ash that she's inscribed on the floor. It's high tennis, so it's earth magic, and it's masterfully done. And she's sitting in a comfortable chair smoking her pipe. And there's another chair, but Baruch is hesitant to enter because he can't defend himself once he's in there. For whatever reason, he has hesitancy. Well, he's saying, right. like, what, will his warren or whatever it is not work within there? Is that, like... No. Is that what it is? Can't cast out, yeah. can't cast in. So that sounds like a good thing, except Vorkin doesn't need to use magic necessarily, right? Well, he says the only thing that can get through that ward is Auditoral, and he doesn't think that, that Vorkin would use it since it would hamper her also. So why not go in? Why why be so hesitant? I don't know. Okay, so Derridan says some really wise things, trying to convince him to just sit down. Just have a seat. Join me in the circle of protection. 
And one of those things is that all of the dead wizards from their cabal probably paced in their houses waiting for Vorkin to arrive, convinced of their immortality, convinced that they could not be bested. And yet... Another one bites Vorkin the dust. Is, yeah, and it's just like ding, ding, ding. And now right outside the door, you know, this is a timestamp for us. The inhuman scream of the dragon... The destruction of the wall. This stuff happens now, right now. And Baruch goes towards the window to look out because his wards on the back gate have just been shattered. And Derridan says, please don't. Vorkin is going to take advantage of this moment. Yeah, so he he, he turns around and is making to go into the circle of protection. When Vorkin arrives. Yeah, boom, just like that. <laughs> There's a wind on his cheek, and Vorkin is in the room with them. So Vorkin has, is described as having gloved hands, and both gloves are like glowing red, which I take to mean that they're charged, essentially, <laughs> yeah, exactly. with like some kind of touch attack, a death touch <laughs> attack, you know, something horrible. And she reaches out to touch Baruch, who is right there, right there. But she's intercepted by a Tisty Andy woman who just starts hammering on her, wailing on her, blow after blow after blow to drive her back. Do you think this is the same one that was hanging out with... Uh... Do you mean the unluckiest... This is the unluckiest Tisty Andy woman on record. That's who this is. The unluckiest? Right. She was bested by... <laughs> she was bested by the Crimson Guard... Twice, maybe three times, I think, actually. Because she wanted to kill Crocus is what it was, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you think it's Surratt? They didn't say it, but you think it's Surratt? I mean, I know it's Surratt because of the end of the chapter, and there's no point in dissembling right now. This is Surratt. She's just very unlucky, and Vorkin gets a hand on her. Bam. And she goes flying against the wall, like past Baruch. Out of the fight, basically. Out of the fight. And then Vorkin begins to head for Baruch again. Well, actually, uh, Surat then gets uh, gets another blow in, right? Right at the end. Yeah. She gets a dagger into Vorkin's chest, which Vorkin just pops out and tosses on the ground. And then Derridan decides she wants to get involved. So she comes out of the circle of protection and begins casting. And Vorkin takes her out with a dagger that's poisoned, and then she's still like going after Baruch, and Baruch's like, no! He casts magic, and she just dispels it, no problem. And he knows that she is a better, uh, whatever, wizard than he is. Whatever it be. His master in sorcery is how it was described. Okay, that's thank you. Yeah. So he's just waiting to die, basically. But, you know, he's mad, so he, like, he makes a run for her. But we know this guy's overweight, and he's, like, out of shape. And he's – so she just sidesteps him, and he goes flying and sprawling on the ground. But there in the doorway, right in front of him, is Crocus with a brick in each hand. <laughs> I'm serious. It's like the ultra high – all right, sorry. Let's go on. Let's go on. Let's go on. Okay, so we have Surratt being the unluckiest Tisty Andy in the world, okay? She's essentially been, she's been bested and bested and bested and then killed, okay? And now we've got Crocus, who is the coin bearer, who is the luckiest young man alive right now, and he's got a brick in each hand, and he's like, nope, wham, wham! One brick smashes Vorkin in the face, and then the other one dispels her other hand. So, and she... On the ground. On the ground. Out. Yeah. Out. Mm-hmm. But but seriously, you've got these the most some of the most powerful well, some of the most powerful wizards in the city, and they're going at it, and Vorkon is just like wiping up the floor with them. And this like seventeen year old thief shows up with a brick and kicks her tail. <laughs> well, I mean, come on, you know, that's uh there's some things that you know, mundane like, objects, I guess. You know, uh, you know, this is this is I know, right? But this is weird because the exact same thing just happened in our D and D group. It's true. It's oh, true. Really? It's 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 kind of ridiculous how funny it is. But I did read this before we played, and so you have to wonder. <laughs> um, okay, so Baruch is like, help me to Derudin. Because Vorkin's out of the fight, Surratt's on the ground, Crocus, you know, goes over there and he looks and there's a dagger in her with some sap on it. He's like, oh, that's poison. 
And it's like, oh, that's White Peralt. Isn't that a spider? He's like, hmm, I'm surprised at your knowledge, young man. Well, Baruch summons the antidote vial and pours it down Derudin's throat. And she coughs, but she revives. And they have a you know, conversation. Oh, I'm glad to see you. Yes, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. And then the next thing you know, they look around. And, of course, Vorkin is gone. And I have to say, that's a trope attack. Trope attack. Of course, Vorkin's oh, gone. Oh, what, that they ignore her for like, you know, a one minute and, or 30 seconds, and then next thing you know, they look over there and she's gone. That's what you mean? Yep. You know the rules, man. You got, you know, yeah. you got a coup de gras. You got to make sure they're dead. <laughs> you don't, you, I mean, they could be regenerating. They could be play acting. You always put a sword through their head. Absolutely. This, or yeah. t- take it off, whatever. You just. But I guess it's hard to do with bricks. I don't know. He's a thief. He's not a killer. You know. Who, Crocus? Yeah. I don't blame Crocus. I blame Baruch. Well, Baruch's Baruch trying to better. save a life and, you know, all that other stuff. Hey, man. It happened I understand. Quick. I understand. It did happen quick. But, again, you know, it's just one of those things. you like, of course, she's going to get away. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, you don't let her go with a goose egg. You finish it off. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Vorkin has escaped, but everybody there is okay. In a private room in the Phoenix Inn, Cole slumbers on, and on another bed rests the body of adjunct Lorne. So we've got Whiskey Jack, Perrin, and all of the bridge burners in here, and this section essentially is an info dump tying up all of the loose ends for the bridge burners. Like what they're going to do going forward? Well, okay, so this scene is another scene with that dagger, the strange human arm dagger that the Kachain Shamel had. And they're speaking with Dujek, and Dujek is revealing just a lot of information. Let's just go through it all, yes? Yeah, they're going to lose Pale. I mean, he said that before, but, I mean, he's saying it again. Yes. It's a reiteration. Um, it's it's like a week away. They're going to lose Pale. Tashrin's in a coma because of the death of the demon lord. Oh, yeah, and during this one, we also find out that Quickben felt that also. He's still he's still in shock, but I'm not sure if that's just surprise or if it, it caused him pain, because if you'll notice, Baruch didn't... It didn't phase Baruch well, at all. Well, I know, but it's funny, I, again, going with that one, he was suffering from his own cabal, uh, or his, you know, his... His wizard people, sorcery people. I I read it as he was surprised. Okay, very good. Dujack pretty much tells uh, Whiskey Jack that you know uh, Tashrin. He they intercepted a note that was supposed to be sent to Tashrin. And remember, they were going the long way. It was supposed to go through Genabacus, which again leads me to believe that you know the. They have to go through incredibly long means. They, as in the Empress and Tashrin, have to go through long, elaborate means to get notes to people instead of just, you know, the undead cell phone that they have or whatever it is. <laughs> what about the Warren and Topper, though? Even then, I think it would take a long time. But you're right, that would be that would be faster. But So I thought it was kind of weird that he they sent a paper note instead mm. of sending somebody through a Warren, right? Yeah. Well, remember, Tattersail couldn't go over water, so maybe maybe she's not alone in that. Oh, I didn't think about that. What, uh, well, okay, well, well, no, because Topper did, because he found he found Yeah, he on found the Perrin on the, on the ship, yeah. Yeah, he found Perrin on the ship. But anyway, so Duchek says that, uh, you know, they intercepted this letter that told Tashrin to basically outlaw them and, I guess, you know... Put, Execute Duchek! Yes. Execute! Yes, exactly. Well, the point I'm getting to... Is that so? Tashrin, when his demon died, he's in a coma. Why didn't Dujek finish him off right then? No, that's a good question. That's a good question. Were they in the Maybe same Dujek's spot? Maybe Dujek's not a murderer. Yeah, they're impaled. They're all together. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I mean, do remember how honorable Dujek is? So honorable that the Moranth don't want to. Oh no, that's Caladan Brood, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. That seems like a good question, but maybe Dujek just is not a murderer. Maybe. Well, it's whether or not you're a murderer, that is your enemy, and it would be tactically sound to eliminate the most powerful wizard in the Empire. Especially yeah. when they want you dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, would do, they would do you, so why not do them, right? 
Um, okay, so Dujek also says that he has a parlay with Caladan Brood and Kalor in the morning. So that's leading us into another novel. Um, Sari is going to head for home, and Kalam and Fiddler are going to escort her, but they want to rejoin the Bridge Burners when and if they can. Um, Whiskey Jack is being promoted to be Dujek's number two, and any Bridge Burners that want to walk may... But any that choose to re-enlist will be under Perrin. Yeah, he wants... When Dujek is saying all that stuff about Perrin, he's saying it to Whiskey Jack, and he's saying, I want Perrin here to hear this. But isn't everybody there to hear this? That's in this room? (laughs) I mean, they'll listen to Whiskey Jack, I think, is the problem. Right, <laughs> everybody in the all the bridge burners they'll follow Whiskey Jack right. over Perrin if it comes to it. So Dujek is letting everybody know that Whiskey Jack is between. Um, well, whatever you, you know what happened there, right? <laughs> and not only that, uh, they find out that uh, that Cole's been awake and hearing this whole, <laughs> the whole thing. Time. Yeah, exactly. They checked on him before they started that conversation. And and then as soon as they realize that he's awake, he's heard the whole thing. So, I mean, how good did they check on him? I know, right? I thought it was just kind of funny. It's just like, imagine yourself waking up after being asleep for six days, and they're literally talk, talking about, I mean... The- Extractions and, yeah, spies and dead wizards or comatose wizards and all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah, really heavy stuff. And, and yeah, Cole just wakes up and says, yeah, yeah, I heard everything. Yeah, you want help getting out of the city? Yeah, that's Yeah, I thought I thought that was awesome. It's kind of awesome, but it kind of does not fit. Right? Like he he had his life saved by these people. I mean, the Perrin, he got his life saved by Perrin. Well, Perrin's right? he here hanging with about these anything dudes, else. And yes, he's being promoted. Perrin's like leading these people. Yes. You know, but my one question is this. Dujek is saying that he's going to be executed if they get him right dujek yeah or dujek is going to be executed right he's not going to stick around for that but he's saying you're my second in command of what army is he talking about i mean he's the army the the malazan army army, the the one the one on this continent so they are just divorce he's taking all his troops with him like they've been talking about and some of the moranth and the more yeah <laughs> and he's ditching the empress yes and he's going to try to turn his army to the south to go take on the panion seer but he said that that would depend on whether calor and caladan brood would let them escape right and which is why they're talking in the morning uh-huh. that's right. why they're having that parlay and i think dujek i mean it, he basically he implied that there's there's a chance that you know brood and calor would just kill him outright instead yeah. of listen to him speak Right, but I thought it was weird. Not, I mean, there's some altruism to turning your coat and then marching your entire army down to take on the Penny and Seer. I think there's some there's some awesomeness there. But why would you do that? It's the real threat, right? Well, no, I agree, and we kind of know it is. But I guess to to convince the entire army to go do that is, I don't know. To me, it's a stretch. I don't think he has to convince them to do anything. They, we, we've seen from past chapters that they will follow him to the ends of the earth. He doesn't have to do anything. True. Right? To convince them. Right. And I mean, these people, they have no, it doesn't seem like they have any aspirations other than being the people that they are. So they just want to be military people for people they believe Even in. Even the ones you know? that were given the opportunity to walk away now are all like volunteering to to join back up right right exactly. bridge burners were given carte blanche to start over to go home no rec um well do you remember do you remember what uh whiskey jack said in the prologue he's like you you only become a soldier when you failed at everything else <laughs> and for the first time Perrin actually feels like a soldier and it's a uh an achievement actually he did mention it, and yeah. it, it it gave him like a source of pride. Like he finally, he finally made it to where he really wanted to be in life. Well, he waited through all this stuff to get to this point to finally be the person that he dreamed of being. And you know, I assume like 
you know, you don't want to be a soldier working for the bad guys, right? <laughs> or who yeah, are the bad sure. guys? You know, you want to take on real evil or whatever it may be. Well, he was talking to himself and he literally said, um, he said, I could not have done better anywhere. And he was very proud to be the commander of the bridge burners. So back in the glade of the Simtal estate, Ralik Nam has watched the Azeth grow from a tree stump into a full-fledged house. He got knocked off at some point in time. He said it was like the hand of God just shoved him off. And then a bunch of roots stre- you know, stretched out and then brought back that apparition that we know was the tyrant. Yeah, he, keep, he keeps saying that everything uh, that was happening... Uh, was right and just and yeah. say it a couple times and he just like innately knows these things that he's like presupposing so do you remember our conversations in the past about Ralic and how he was he'd kind of gone down this path to helping Cole because he thought it was the right and just thing to do and then when he thought that maybe Cole was going to die before they could actually help him attain his titles again he's he was like please tell me that it means something that justice means something so i'm not sure why Ralic has this affinity with justice and rightness but it does seem that he has such a thing and he feels this affinity with the azeth hmm. Well, he even described it as near euphoria mm-hmm. over how his life has taken a, a positive turn. And uh, I, I don't know. It's a little heartwarming, to be honest. Well, he has been here watching this house grow. He watched the tyrant get buried. He watched it develop. He's he's described it as like a full-fledged house with a tower and a Merlin balcony and he knows also certainly that it's empty despite the thing in the graveyard, right? He knows it's empty, which leads me to the question, does the house need a caretaker? Oh, you know, I don't know, but it, it also says in this section that there's mounds all over the place and mm-hmm. it had drugged that apparition into one of the mounds. So right. maybe the, so if there's lots of mounds to me, that means there's lots of bad guys at least one for every mound, right? I don't know. I think they're prepa- I think they're preparations, right? I think that they can accommodate more than one. And this this Azeth house, which is just ba- it's a baby, it's brand new, has one. Like it formed, it took in the tyrant, and there's probably room for more if it is, you know, strong enough to contain them. Oh, okay. All right. I can see that. So as he's here monitoring this house, essentially, Vorkin arrives, pursued by the Tisty Andy, and she says that they want vengeance for a murder. And I'd say that's a strange way for Vorkin to put it, but accurate. So she collapses, and Ralik just throws her over one shoulder and heads for the door of that house. Like he knew. <laughs> that's accurate as well. Yeah. He knew it would open for him, and it did. I don't get it. Maybe you're not supposed to get it, but... I I have to assume that we're not supposed to understand it. How could we? There's not nearly enough information here. Nothing. It's just that poem in the beginning. Because, do you remember the conversation, the very brief conversation that Ralik Nam had with Krupp when Ralik was about to leave? And Krupp had just woken up from his dream. This is at Lady Simtal's fate. And mm-hmm. he, he told Ralik to, like, be quiet, I'm thinking. And then Ralik was kind of taken aback. And then Krupp said to him, uh, you know, go on. Your fate awaits you. Your destiny awaits, I believe, is the words that he used. Your destiny awaits. That's right. Do you think Krupp knew? I think Krupp knows more than we do. And I think that while Ralik entered that house and we don't see Ralik again, I, I feel like if it had been a death that Krupp would have responded differently. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I, f- I remember I remember asking that question. I was like, what fate is he talking about? Or what destiny is he talking about? Yeah, he saw something that we just don't understand. That's, that's all. I mean, I, I'm not sure. Uh, but now that house is not empty anymore. And it has its caretaker then, I guess? I assume so. Yeah. I assume so. All right, so you guys ready to move to the next section? 
It's a direct continuation of this scene, mm -hmm. essentially. Sure. Unable to pursue any further, the Tisti Andy observed the Azath. So these are loose ends. These people were the ones chasing Vorkin. This is Surratt's blood kin who is deciding how things go, which is why I'm certain that it was Surratt who died. Yeah. She describes the Azeth house as Eidermarn. <laughs> Something, <laughs> right? That's uh, a weird word uh, there. I like that. That's fine. Adiramarn? 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 We should just have a whole clip of us trying to pronounce that word. <laughs> <laughs> All at the same Ridiculous. time. <laughs> <laughs> It's like bad Latin. <laughs> it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. I think she translates it for us into the words pillars of innocence. Yeah. So the door won't open to them. No, they can't get in. <laughs> and they know it. They ain't so innocent. <laughs> Dude, that's such nonsense. Vorkon and Raliknam both go in there. They are not. Ralik took mm. Vorkon in. Ralik. Ralik is the one. Uh, yes. Vorkon okay. did not walk in. And okay, fact, however... The Tisti Andy point out that there has been precedent before because yeah maybe they maybe Ralik isn't in it Ralik is an assassin yeah. there's no way that guy's innocent. but they choose their own the Azath the Azath whatever that means so who did they choose in the past you know, if they like you it's okay <laughs> no it's, it's oh it tells you it tells you right here right yeah. It, well, it lists two other Azath. It says the Dead House of Malaz City and the Odin House of Seven Cities. So who who are the precedent? Uh, Kelimved and Dancer. Oh. Okay, so, so what does that that's mean? something that we can... Exactly. I mean, we could <laughs> dig and trowel and uncover all day long and not get anywhere with this information. <laughs> other than to say... That it accepted them as men before they were shadow thrown and the rope, Ooh, that's... and they became gods. But was that the trigger, or are they even related? Oh, I'm so confused. Right, it's it's unknown. <laughs> However, I will point out to you both that one of them, Kelimved, was a high mage, and obviously Dancer is an assassin, and that's exactly what just went into this house. Oh, I didn't even get that. Hey, that's awesome. So maybe the Azath choose like super potent, you know, wizards and killers to protect them or to be their. I don't know. I don't know what the purpose. That sounds is. like a I good uh, deal. <laughs> it's a good match, right? Sure, it's a good match. Yeah. So you're maybe right. maybe this is the destiny that Ralik, that Krupp saw for Ralik was that he was going into the house with you know Vorkin, who's a lady, to be a guard. Don't know. Don't know. Very to hard to say. Caretaker of a house. He's not even that good of an assassin. What do you mean? <laughs> do you know what I mean? He would have been bested by Kalam. Well, I feel like Darujistan assassins are kind of like triple A. And then, you know, the Malazans are like a little bit more MLB or something like that, you know. <laughs> I feel like Darujistan is kind of early game, levels 1 through 10. There you go, yeah. <laughs> and then the Malazans are like 10 through 18 or so, sure. you know. And then Anamander Rake and stuff, those guys are like 18 to 25. I'll be 25. like, jeez, man, I never even sniffed 12th. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So the Tisti Andy in observing this house and observing precedent and et cetera, they give us a lot of information. One of them suggests that Anamander Ray could come and kill this thing right now while it's still young. But what's her name? Corlat? Corlat. Corlat says, no, it's young. It's a child and it's innocent and leave Anamander Rake to his recovery. So they know he's been messed up by that demon. Well, I thought it was interesting. They describe it as a child, not a tree. Do you know what I mean? I do, I do. Why can't Anamander Rake be the one to destroy it? It's because of Dragon Power? He's on another level when it comes to power. But it's obvious. Tisti, but his his people are like as powerful as he. I think he was being generous when he described these people as being on a level with him. Okay. Honestly. But he did I mean, do that. Saw... Right? I mean they did that did happen, right? He did, he did so describe them, but we have seen Surratt being bested over and over and over again by the Crimson Guard. 
And these this gaggle of Tistiandi were not able to catch up to and kill Vorkin. So okay. maybe Vorkin is on a level with Anamander Rake. Maybe not. But definitely these Tistiandi are not on the same level as Anamander Rake. Vorkin sounds like a stud for sure. She's a badass. Yeah. Vorkin is a badass. All right. So let's talk about the lore that is described because a long time ago we got a story told to Lorne by Onos Tulan about the Tistiandi coming to this world. And that that's on page 316 if you guys want to look at it. The story he had heard and was relaying to her was that the Tistiandi were either kicked out or they left by choice. And we find in the lore revealed here that there is a third option, and that is that their world was destroyed. I don't know if they literally mean like a planet or it's just a metaphor for their their lives were destroyed. They said the destruction of their world. I know. Yeah, I get it. We're the reality. We're, we're taking talking about Rake's people, right? Yeah. Yeah, I always uh, imagined it to be like some dimension or something where they came from. You know, when you're talking about gods and and rents in the air and all that other stuff that happens in these fantasy novels. It's a little abstract to some degree. Definitely. But Definitely. Yeah, it sounds like it's an, it's an other place. Let's just call it that. Oh, so Tool described it a long time ago as a warren that was separate from all others. It was untouched and pure. And and now we're seeing we're seeing that it was it was corrupted by light. And I the way that I imagine it is that if you have a dark place and light gets in, you no longer have a dark place. It's... You have a place of shadow mm-hmm. or light. And you know it's definitely not dark anymore, right? Cuz light got in. Let's talk about the lore that's revealed here, though, okay? We already learned about the Emperor and, or, you know, Kelenved and Dancer. And, okay, so the Queen of Darkness spoke thus of light when it was first born. It is new, and what is new is innocent, and what is innocent is precious. And then one of them, Orphantal, he responds that thus did light survive, and so was darkness destroyed, and purity vanquished. And now you would have us flawed as our queen was flawed. Light became corrupted and destroyed our world, Corlat, or have you forgotten? And she replies, cherish such flaws, dear brother, for our queen's was hope and so is mine. Got it. I thought, uh, I thought that was so poignant. It was beautiful. And, and to think that somebody who values hope, the way that she described hope there and that that was their queen's greatest flaw, to think that they're not innocent... Is strange to me, but okay. So whatever. The jagged tyrant was talking about corrupting <laughs> civilizations, right? And his people yeah. avoid that type of connection. They don't want to do that because they realize that in civilization is like the true evil or something like that. Yeah, civilization is the road to evil. So, like the light coming into the darkness, creating a shadow, like you said. It's like a forcing of civilization within darkness that never wanted it. And that's the corruption. You know, it's like the addition of something else that's the corrupting factor of... It's very... um, This book, in a lot of it, it feels like it's very isolationist. (laughs) And at least in these characters and these worlds and, you know, not wanting to be a part of the other ones because of all the crazy stuff that goes on. That's kind of what I'm I'm seeing with what we're talking about right here. And the corrupting of the light in the darkness. And there's such a uh there's such a reverence to the antisocial uh, <laughs> at least within a couple of the races that it's at least a theme. Sure. So do you guys think that these Tistiandi were alive to witness this corruption and the leaving or the destruction of the world? Cuz I don't know that they were. So they might be reciting they might be reciting like a religious text essentially, you know, thus was thus was our world destroyed, thus was darkness destroyed. 
Because was Anamanda Rake even there? See that he's only two hundred thousand years old. That doesn't seem possible. And maybe that's uh, going back to that thing where they were uh, the Ghislaine uh, demon was saying to Anamanda Rake how he uh, smells of uh, Tiama. Tiama. Maybe Tiama is just like something that was after Mother Dark, you know, after a separation mm. from the area. Um, oh, you have more of the taint of this, which is you know, not what you really are or whatever. So that demon Lord was of light. Mm. That was like, his ax was dripping with bright light. Uh, I mean, he, they're like, they're opposed. They're, they're on opposite ends. He is the son of darkness. And that demon Lord was part of the corruption. Hmm. You guys had really adamantly expressed your discontent with Baruch for summoning demons. As I recall, and we're dealing with demons who are light instead of dark, right? It's like it's completely role reversed for our perspective as well, because Anamanda Rake's a good guy. Yeah, maybe demons dark. are just you know more of a type of thing that you summon as opposed to like a good or bad necessarily. Maybe, but uh, there there was a lot of reference to light when they were doing battle and when he died, when the Galane Lord died, the light in his ax went out. So sad. I don't know. So sad. (laughs) Other books can answer these questions for us, but ultimately it's, you know, whatever it's, it's lore that I enjoy. It's like why I like dark souls so much. Cause there's just lore, you know, lots and lots of lore. You get to put it together in a puzzle and it's beautiful. Ultimately, you know, to, to the Tisty Andy light is the perversion, right? So it doesn't matter. If you're like, oh, good guys wear white, <laughs> you know, bad guys wear black, you know, or whatever. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that here. Um, it's just perception. Right. A lot of this is just perception. How do you as a people perceive the Malazans coming into your city? You know? <laughs> Badly? That's not a good thing? <laughs> some people think it is. Some people don't. That guy's dead. Turbinor died like a little beep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we talked this to death. Are you yeah, we did. We beat it we beat it like a dead horse. Krupp and Marilio are watching from the gate of Cole's estate as Crocus shambles up exhausted. <laughs> Poor Crocus. He's been running around all night long. <laughs> trying to score, trying to get information, trying to save lives. He's done it all, and he's done it well. And he's still... And he's young, (laughs) and he's fit, and he's exhausted, but he did it, right? He met all of his goals, except for one. Right now, he's very concerned that Apslar has been kidnapped by the Empire, and he needs help. (laughs) Krupp's like, oh, don't worry, I know exactly where she is. And Ralik's still in there, in in the garden. And they're like, oh, Ralik, yes, well... So they, they start meandering off to the inn to get a drink, and Marilio explains that Ralik's missing, and then Krupp begins to tell a story. He's telling the story of uh, how how Lady Simtal's estate has now become Cole's estate. And he's also talking yeah. about this is where the Azeth house is and the garden of Cole's estate. Of course, the most important thing when you're starting any story that Krupp is ta- telling is where Krupp was at the very beginning. Krupp is the story. He is the story. And Marilio says to Crocus, and thus spake the eel. Oh, that's what you were getting at. That is a clear and obvious reference to Nietzsche. Sure. I mean, it's... Uh, but no, I don't think anybody here, stop me if I'm wrong, but I don't think anybody amongst the three of us is qualified to really explain how that's a reference. Well, all right. So you're talking about uh, the the novel, uh, Thus Spake yes. Zarathustra. 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 Sorry. Yes. Which is yes. also the, Zoroaster. the music in 2001, A Space Odyssey. That's fine. I don't know how related those two I'm things are. I'm just trying to like... Give you a sensory situation also. It's the big one. Okay. So the one thing that I can say for certain is that this is a reference to Nietzsche. And Nietzsche's novel is about Zoroaster. And he was, in that novel, committed to the idea of man becoming greater. 
they refer to it as Ubermensch. So it's like becoming Superman. And what we're looking at is a novel that has been filled with adepts who are on the path to ascendancy. So that's all I can really get. And I am unqualified to say more. So I'm going to leave it alone. Maybe uh, the thus spake the eel is like, you know, signifying to those of you that didn't realize by now that our character is the eel. I don't know how you don't know by now. (laughs) If you (laughs) haven't gotten that by now, you are not paying attention. But Marilio knows who he is, and I would say now it's probably, you know, Krupp, Krupp might have just been revealed to Crocus, but maybe not. Maybe Crocus already knew. So the epilogue is preceded by another preamble. This one is a continuation or another excerpt from Rumorborn by Fisher, and I didn't get much out of it other than we have a city that has been created by a rumor. Like people came to the city, which is something that we already knew looking for the tyrant's grave. And what we're left with is this glorious city, Darujistan. And we're now leaving Darujistan. Like all of the people that we know and love minus the three that we just left crocus, Marilio and Krupp, everybody else. Oh, and Cole, Everybody else is leaving Drujistan to continue the story in other books. No, Crocus is too. Right, right. Crocus is as well. So, the epilogue, yes? Yes. Yeah. Um, we've got the bridge, burger, bridge burners waiting for the Moranth to come and extract them on that same pedible beach where they were dropped off back in Chapter 8. Philip, you had mentioned already that Quick Ben is scheming. But he's not going to tell Whiskey Jack because it's going to blow his mind and he wants to give the man a chance to rest. We've got Perrin, having just buried Lorne, is having a mental conversation with Silver Fox, something Yule had mentioned. And on a boat sailing to Darvan, we've got Kalam watching Crocus and Absalar kind of dance around each other because they haven't quite figured out each other yet. And he's with Fiddler. <laughs> Fiddler's on the same boat. Yep. So Circle Breaker observes with relief as Crocus tosses that coin into the sea. Oh, ATN's favorite character, everybody. Circle Breaker? Circle Breaker. Circle Breaker is happy when Crocus tosses the coin in the water. It sounds like maybe just possibly he had one more thing he had to do if that didn't occur. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like he's going to report he's the gonna very report least, this happy news yeah. to the eel. In, in the very least, yeah. he was going to have to report about Crocus still having it. But other than that, I uh, <laughs> do you think Circle Breaker had another job? <laughs> I don't. I don't. The fact that he's still reporting, I like that. Uh, okay, so we've got Malazan's on the same boat as Circle Breaker, which is why earlier I said that I thought Cole was going to turn to Krupp to help him get the Malazans out of the city. Ah, yeah, it makes sense. Because this is Krupp's boat. Yeah. This this boat belongs to the eel. Oh, so Krupp set it all up. Yes. Yes. <sighs> I think so. I think so. Um, Philip? Yeah. Yule? Yeah. yeah. This ends the first tale of the Malazan Book of the Fallen. <gasps> I know. You know, it's so hard to not want to go and just read the next one right now. Well, I do. Oh, Dead House Gates, right? Is that the next one? And then Memories of Ice. They happen concurrently. So as one thing's happening in one area of the world, the other one's happening over here. Well, I'm going to have to read it because, yes, I did read the second book like years ago. I, did, I don't remember a single thing from it. And a Coltane. He, oh, they're in that one? Oh, yeah, that's right. Coltane. Uh, oh, man, that was a horrible book. I break for- my heart yes. over and over and over again. Break my heart. Just wait. Ugh, and then I, d- I don't. Th- yeah, and then yeah. There's a lot of Duker. Oh my God, Duker's in that I like one. Him a lot. Historian. Yeah. Yeah. Love. Yeah. I mean, you get you I get to meet don't... another uh, couple of relatives of Perrin. That's awesome. Uh, his sister. Yeah, his yeah. sister. I forgot. Yeah, that one's just too too sad, man. That was a sad one. I don't know if I could read it again. <laughs> well, they it ties in so deep, but it does. We're not going to read does. those for this show going forward, right? 
certainly not the way that we did this book. Not anytime soon either. A long time ago, we set out to make this podcast the way that we have made this podcast, or at least that was my understanding of it, and we have done so. And I feel that to do all 10 books would be foolhardy. Well, not only that, Etienne, uh, you know, for the longest time when I was reading these novels uh, in 2011, or maybe even earlier, I forget, there was nobody out there really talking about the books hardly. Um, there was a Wikipedia and there was a Malazan site and, you know, there's obviously a lot of reading, but nobody really talking to us out no there. YouTube no videos, YouTube videos. No podcasts. Exactly. Yeah. And we started off doing the black company so that we could get ready to maybe do this. And since that time, there have been a number of people that have been paying attention to the Malazan books, giving it a lot of time actually having interviews with Steven Erickson, doing all this stuff other than what we're doing right here. So there's a lot of Malazan stuff out there for people to you know pay attention to. There's a lot of good podcasts out there. I'd recommend checking those out. And then if you want to like get in on something that you know other people haven't checked out yet, we're the people to check out first. Well, I think that, um, as you say, there there are a lot of people now making content for the Malazan Book of the Fallen and Steven Erickson in general. And I just wonder why it took so long. Um, yeah, they haven't done Black Company yet either, guys. <laughs> Get on it, people. <laughs> yeah, before he before he's gone. Hey, so what's the uh, what is where's the rumor mill when it comes to maybe creating a, a film series for to cover any of these books? No idea. I generally don't pay attention to that kind of stuff because it would have to be a super high budget television show. Well, it happened for the Game of Thrones and it just launched launched that series into superstardom. If I was going to do this book, let's just say this book alone, I have noted uh, like four or five times when there were really fantastic scenes. And what I would do is think of uh, shortcuts, the 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 novel or the movie you're talking about the carver thing yes and it's just like little pieces of something that make up a whole and basically vignettes and i would do yeah. malazan as vignettes and not as a, a a super overall arching arching theme i would just take the really great moments and make a television episode out of that because there's so many great little elements alone that you can pick up on these characters just within that scene, and you'll never have to ever visit them ever again. And you could do that with Baruch and Animander Rake. Oh my God, they had some good scenes. And if it wasn't then, maybe it's Simtal and her betting scenes. You know, everybody loves that in the program, right? And you have Crocus and his little thing, and Krupp. I mean, maybe he's just the one narrator kind of going through the whole thing because he likes to talk about himself. And so that's what I personally would do if I was, uh, and I don't know anything about TV or movies. Other than you watch Other it. than that. That's what I would do with this stuff, because you can't just do a, hey, we're going to do a Lord of the Rings story. You know, it's not, you're never going to do that. People are going to die before you're finished. Yeah, exactly. All 10 books would be a real challenge yeah. for anybody. Anyway, so that's what I would do. You know, you have some really great Quick Ben stuff here. I know in the other novels there's some really great stuff with him later on. You can just revisit those and kind of move the story forward, but it really doesn't have to necessarily uh, be one connective tissue. It could just be elements right. of the story. That's what I do. Okay. I mean, I would want to see the whole thing. Oh, yeah, it'd be great. Personally, <laughs> of course, I want. I mean, like, I can. You can never get enough of a good thing, right? So, like, if they did a good job, which they would undoubtedly do for at least the first season, you know, you'd have a really good show on your hands. And then, you know, second season's not quite as good. Third season, they've made a lot of money and they start not paying their writers anymore. And then fourth season's a bomb. And then they're like, well, we got to get them back for the fifth season. So we're going to kill off some characters that didn't die in the books and then forget it. Just give me one hairlock scene, please. (laughs) Some fanfic movies, right? Uh, You know, I just think, you know, like that scene where we're watching the Malazans talking their battle strategy before they go out and get decimated or actually the way the story went, 
They get decimated, and then we see them make their battle plans. And uh, it's just, that is such a gripping scene within the book. And I think just that alone would make a really nice little 30-minute episode. Hey, if you're listening to this and you feel like making movies, Yule's got requests. That's what I do. I can just start picking That's out some of wants. the scenes say, oh, this would be really good. You could do this. All right. Well, okay. So let me ask you a couple questions here. Maybe just one question. Are there any things left in this novel that we have done to death that you feel are unanswered? You guys walking away with any questions that you're still kind of like in the back of your mind, just worrying at you and bothering you? No, I don't think so for me personally. Um, It'll probably be like remembrances of things that are connecting to either the later books or those reflecting back on this. Um, Just with a little bit more understanding. I always got a little bit confused on like what the races were. And since we've talked about it so many times, I feel like I have a, a, a better understanding or remembrance of who they are. Says the guy who couldn't remember Jagged. Well, I did get it out. So I went back um, over the course of this last week while I was reading in preparation for this podcast. Um, I went back and I reread all of Krupp's dreams and I reread all of the mentions and scenes that included Decks of Dragons readings. I didn't come across anything new from the Decks of Dragons and I didn't really come across anything from the dreams. I think that actually we did pretty well when it came to it in the moment we read them and I think we did a decent job. Um, but I was drawn to the notion that I don't really, I still don't know about that sack hanging from the crossroads, the burlap sack hanging from the crossroads. The corrupt said was his humility, uh-huh. right? Yep. And then I got to wondering, like around that time, wasn't Tattersail out on the plane? And didn't Tattersail have to make a crossroads? And didn't there wasn't there a woman in a burlap sack? Oh uh, yeah. yeah, it was. Uh, it was um, what's his name's Night Chill. Yeah. And in the end, in the end, do you remember how Bellardin and Tattersail's body was described as looking like a tree? Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember that. So I don't know. That's the only thing I went back and found. Oh, oh, one other thing. So I lied. There were two things. Do you remember how we weren't real sure when Tattersail fell unconscious and there was a man's voice urgently in her ear saying, what do you hear? So during one of those previous readings that she did with Hairlock, she did two cards only, right? She chose to stop on Opon. She slammed her hand down, and he's like, I could kill you, woman. And she's like, you're not gonna. She had asked him when she was leaving the room, because she had to go and visit Tayshirin at the time, she had asked him, what do you hear, Hairlock? And he's like, what do you mean, what do I hear? And then like 80 pages later, she's falling unconscious, and somebody's whispering, a man's voice is whispering in her ear urgently, what do you hear? So I'm not so keen on it being Tayshirin anymore. Now I'm kind of of the opinion that it was Hairlock. And I know one of you mentioned that that might be Hairlock at the time, but having gone backwards now, that's kind of where I'm left with that as well. Um, but general questions overall, there's a lot of lore stuff that I just don't understand. The Azith is a perfect example. You know, Anamanda Rake, come on, man. He's only 200,000 years old. Seems a little young to be as powerful as he is and to know the stuff that he knows. So the uh, series that Erickson wrote after the 10 was the beginning of, uh, you know, like how Dragnipar was made and everything. So it's all about yeah. Anamander Rake and there's been two novels, but they didn't do so well. And at the time he was also mm-hmm. writing some other stuff. So I guess he's going to be going back and writing another Malazan series and then eventually he's supposed to be writing the third book of that um, that Anamanda Rake, which is going to have a lot of the, you know, that 200,000 years. That lore that we're missing so much. Oh, man, there's some good novels to come. You guys got to keep reading it, and I highly recommend it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was a question that I was going to pose to the both of you. Could you recommend this book in, you know, in good conscience to people? If I know they can't stick to it, then no, I can't in good conscience. Do you don't think this is a good standalone novel? I think it is. I think it's great. Um, I think it's a great standalone novel. It's like Dune. You know, it stands by itself. You don't have to finish the series. It's good. 
You do not ever have to read another book. But you should. But if but and if you should and you don't want to read all ten, you should read the first three. Okay, that's fair. Well, do you guys think that we've done our job? The job that we set out to do? Yeah, I do. Philip? Pretty much I do. Yeah. I think we did a great job. Hmm. Well, I guess it's it'll be left to the people who listen to these podcasts to decide that truthfully for us. Maybe we can't judge. Maybe we're too close. I know we missed a lot of stuff, and I know that the way that we did this podcast is not going to be to everybody's taste, but I feel good about having done it, and I feel like we could not have done it better without doing it again. Well, do you guys have anything you would like to add, or should we close it out? Um, No, I don't. I think we can uh, wrap this thing up with pride. I think so, too. I think so, too. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, I'm proud of what we have accomplished here. I am proud of us for not fighting <laughs> the whole way through. Uh, Only part of the way through. <laughs> well, I mean, you got to disagree, and you got to disagree, right? So, And we only had to redo a couple episodes. One and a half. One and a half. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us. We hope very much that you have enjoyed listening to this podcast. We're off to other things for now. Maybe someday we'll find a way to return to the Malazan Book of the Fallen. But for the foreseeable future, we're going to find other fields to soil. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you in the next one. Good night. All right. Bye, guys. Welcome to the epilogue. If you've made it this far, then I think a thank you is in order. Thank you. Sincerely thank you all. I don't think we could ask for better fans than we have. We're all really excited to be here, and we're just glad that you're here with us. First announcement. Our next book will be Foundation by Isaac Asimov. The first episode will go live on January 23rd. There will be no interruption in our schedule of the 9th and the 23rd of every month. We expect it to run between six and seven episodes, though that is subject to change. And if it runs as long as expected, that will get us into or through the month of April, at which time we'll begin another title. I have a single copy of Foundation to give away. If you would like to have it, type Foundation in the comment section. I'll have DM Phil roll some dice. We'll select a winner within 24 hours of this video going live. We'll contact you if you're the winner. Second announcement. We have created a Discord server specifically for Foundation. We're going to try it out anyway. One or two of us will be in there prior to recording each episode. If that's something that interests you, there are details in the description. Third and final announcement. We set up a Patreon account because we love what we're doing and we have no intention of stopping. Again, there are details in the description. Thank you. Keep reading, everyone. We'll see you in the foundation.